Um, so, uh, happy Valentine's Day, guys. This is uh, the most appropriate topic for, for Valentine's Day that we could think of. Um, yeah, so this is the third in our in our series on on David and um, Bert and Nancy have kind of unpacked David's relationship with Saul, the previous king, David's relationship with Jonathan, his son, um, and in those in those sermons, we've learned that David is this this man after God's own heart that he's that he's uh, loyal to God that he's um, that he's a good man basically. Um, but in this uh, in this chapter in two Samuel, uh, we find that kind of all uh, falls away, and, and he's not actually living up to um, the the things that we've that we've talked about uh, over the past two weeks. Um, so I just wanted to start. I was thinking about temptation, uh, and the the because that's what this story is really about, right? It's about David's temptation and what happens when you give in to temptation. And the most obvious thing that sprung to mind for me was McDonald's. So uh, the the other day I was. I was out shopping uh, and I was thinking, oh, what should I have for lunch? And I thought, oh, you know, I've got some stuff at home. I've got some, um, I've got some dumplings. I'm going to go home. I'm going to cook those. I'm going to have a nice warm meal instead of just like crisps and a sandwich like I normally do. Um, and so it was all, all fine. And on the way home, uh, McDonald's is around the corner from my house. I just saw the M out of the corner of my eye. Uh, and it was literally autopilot. It didn't it was like not a high-level brain decision. I was just driving, and then I was like, oh, I've put my indicator on. Oh, I'm turning in here. Oh, I've ordered a, a large quarter pounder meal. Um, McDonald's does that to me. As soon as it's in my head, as soon as there's a hint of, uh, of McDonald's, at some point, inevitably, I will end up eating a burger. Um, and that's, uh, that's fine, I guess, every now and again. But um, actually, there's consequences to eating McDonald's because um, it's not great for you. Um, there's this, there's this craving, right? You need that fat. You need that sugar. Um, once, once that thought has started, there's nothing that I can do to stop it. It spends money. I had food at home. I didn't spend any money. Um, Ansi loves to talk about this time where me and Francis apparently kidnapped her and forced her to go to McDonald's um, and forced her to order food and, and forced her to eat it. Um, but, but actually, no, there's, there's consequences as well that, um, that actually what Ansi calls an error of judgment um, and also, I don't really like people to know that I go to McDonald's all the time. I don't like my wife to know that I go to McDonald's a lot. So, uh, so I don't lie about it, but um, sometimes I'll like make sure I take the, the trash out um, in a way that I don't normally take the trash out. Uh, so, so I will be doing the recycling always on the day that I have McDonald's. Just because I don't want to have that conversation, oh, did you have McDonald's again? Oh, have we got money in our budget? Should you be doing that? Is that going to make you fat? I don't want to have those, uh, those conversations. So there's some kind of deceit um, involved in, in my McDonald's uh, outings. And so David and Bathsheba is, is a similar story of these kind of temptations uh, and consequences. Um, but the consequences are much worse um, than me putting on uh, a few pounds. Uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to kind of walk through the story and we're going to kind of look, look at it um, bit by bit. Uh, so we're going to start, it's in, um, it's in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, and the start of 2 Samuel chapter 11 says this. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. So Joab's like this, uh, this kind of general in, in David's army. Um, we, if you read about Joab in the rest of uh, Samuel, he's not the greatest guy. Um, but David sent this guy off to battle. Uh, and immediately that should be kind of, um, if we know anything about David, we should be asking, why is he doing that? It's the time when kings go out to battle. And David, up to this point, is, is being a, a pretty much ideal king, right? Like he's, he's doing what we expect him to do. He's doing what the Israelites wanted in a king. They want a leader. And he's decided, you know what? I'm not going to go to war. 
Actually, this is the first mistake. If he didn't make that decision, then we wouldn't have a sermon because he would have just gone to war and won this great battle and it would have been another passage about how David had um, brought glory to the kingdom of Israel. Um, But in contrast to when we were talking about David and Goliath a few weeks ago, David's like, in David and Goliath, he's like the shepherd. He's like the lowest of the low. He turns up and he's like, okay, nobody else is fighting. I'm going to go and fight. Now, he's not doing that. He's not not defending the kingdom of Israel. Uh, He's decided that he's going to just stay at home. So that's his first mistake. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. So uh, this first sentence, David arose from his couch in the late afternoon, kind of makes me feel like he's like not doing anything in the day. Like he's, he's wearing his pajamas. Maybe he's just eating McDonald's. Like he's, he's just, he's like, oh, I don't know what to do. So he gets up from his couch. He turns his PlayStation off. And he's just like moping around is what, what I kind of read in this. Um, and then it says David, David goes up to the roof. Um, and this is a really important question to ask, right? So, um, so in some commentaries, I was, I was reading about this. If you've heard the story of Bathsheba before, you might have heard that, um, that people kind of say, oh, well, this, this woman kind of tempting him. She's, why is she on the roof with no clothes on? That's, that's not an appropriate thing. Like, she's at fault here. Um, but I don't think that's the case, actually. So... Um, in, in Israelite uh, custom, uh, once a month, a woman had to, to um, cleanse herself to, to do this kind of ritual bathing to, to make herself clean after the period. And, um, and in part of the, the, um, the kind of custom, uh, they had to bathe in running water uh, to, to, to do this. But obviously in a city, water you don't have a river flowing through the middle of Jerusalem. So um, instead, there's this kind of allowance that says, well, rainwater is moving water. So if you bathe in rainwater, that's okay. And the only place that you're going to get a lot of rain, a bath full of rainwater is if you put a big container on your roof, right? So um, some commentators think that actually it's the norm for, uh, for most houses to have these baths on the roof where um, the women could, could go, and that's their kind of place where they have the rainwater, where they can cleanse themselves. And that would be common knowledge, right? So men would have known this. They would have known that, okay, well, on the roofs uh, are women doing their ritual thing. They're not doing anything dodgy. They're there because um, they, they want to be clean. Um, so actually, the question is, should David ever be going up to his roof at all? He, he knows that he's going to be able to, to look out and see. And Bathsheba is close enough that he can see from his house, right? Like, it's not like he hasn't been up there before. Or maybe he hasn't. I don't know. But he probably knows that there's a bath up there within sight of his um, of his rooftop, right? So there's there's this kind of idea of like when he goes up to the roof, is he already kind of got some some dodgy thoughts going on? Is he already kind of hoping to see something that he shouldn't? Um, and then uh, it says here uh, he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and kind of your your first instinct if you saw something that you shouldn't, is not to continue looking, right? It should be to look away. But it says he noticed that the woman was very beautiful. And I think that requires like a little bit more um, intention, a little bit more kind of spending a longer looking than you should do. Um, so already he's, uh, he's, he's not doing good things, right? Like he should have just turned away. He spotted someone on the roof and then he went back down and that could have been the end of the story. Oh, we're not moving on, are we? Sorry. Ooh. What's happened? Uh, sorry, can we go back to... Is that the right bit? Yes. Okay. 
so if we continue reading that passage. Um, and David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is it not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And, he, and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her own cleanness. And then she returned to her house. So he, he asks who this woman is, right? And he's told, actually he's told in a way that kind of makes it sound like, um, isn't that Bathsheba? I think that's Bathsheba, right? You know, like the wife of Uriah. Like, it's not like this unknown person. Uriah, by the way, um, is one of David's mighty men. David has these 37 mighty men, these, these like SAS commandos, these marines that, that go on missions with him, um, that do the, the daring military um, kind of things that, that the rest of the army can't do. Um, and so Uriah is one of these 37 men. I'm pretty sure David knows who this guy is. Like, he's appointed these men. He's at least uh, approved of these men, even if he didn't appoint them. And he's a guy that lives close enough to his house or his palace that he can see from the roof, right? So he probably knows that this is Uriah's house. He probably knows who Bathsheba is. Maybe he's not met Bathsheba, um, but he's got this guy, Uriah. He's one of his best soldiers. Um, he that means they've probably gone through battle together, so they, they might be kind of close. They might have shared some war stories together. I don't think he needs to be asking who this person is. He knows who this person is, but he asks anyway, right? And then when he finds out, he, he finds out, oh, it's Uriah's wife. He should be thinking, wait, hang on. This is not just some woman. Not that that would be okay anyway, but this is, this is the wife of one of my best soldiers, one of my, someone that's been through the fire with me, someone that, um, that lives, that I trust to live close enough to my house. Um, he decides that he still wants to continue with, uh, with what he, what's going to take place. Um, and again, it says here, he takes her. He doesn't, he doesn't send an invitation. Hey, do you want to come over to the king's palace? He takes her, right? Like it's not Bathsheba's fault that, that she's, uh, that she's been commanded by the king to come into his presence. Uh, she doesn't, she doesn't, well, she probably doesn't know what's going to happen. And she also, like, I don't think she has much choice, right? Like, if the king asks you to do something, what are your options? I don't know what the consequence for her would be if she refused. Um, and again, David lay with her. If the king asks you to do something, I don't know what position, uh, I don't know what that feels like to be in that position. Um, but I don't think we can put a lot of blame with Bathsheba here. It's David that's the one with all the power. He's the one that's deciding what the situation, what's going to happen in the situation, right? Um, so I don't think we should try and excuse his behavior by, by saying, oh, you know, Bathsheba is partly responsible for this because she joined in with, uh, with what, what happened. Actually, David's the one that's, that's calling the shots here. Um, but we're told after, in this last sentence, that she returns to her house. Um, and that makes me think, you know, maybe she's actually She's still committed to being in that house, right? She's still where she's legally kind of obligated, but, um, but he's the king, right? Like, if she wanted to stay with David, she could have maybe said, oh, you know, David, can you kind of make something happen here? But actually, she returns home. She wants to go back to, uh, to Uriah's house. Um, so I feel like she's probably committed to Uriah. So what happens next? Um, so David uh, tries to uh, trick Uriah. So the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house, and all the servants of, the, of his lord, and did not go down to his house. 
When they told David, Uriah, don't go to, didn't go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. My lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live, as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here also today. Tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of, the, of his lord, but he did not go down to his house. So David David does this this like really nefarious at the start. He he asks Joab to come back with Uriah, and then he brings Joab in, and he's like, "Hey Joab, what's going on? How's the war? Like, oh oh Uriah, I didn't see you there." You're right. Why don't you just you're, you're, you live around the corner, right? Go go home, have a rest, and I'll just talk about the war with Joab. Like it's completely duplicitous. It's like a complete lie that he's constructed here. There's no reason for him to 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 be doing this. Um, he just wants the excuse to say, "Hey, Uriah, go go and enjoy yourself." Um, and he's essentially kind of saying, like, actually, you know what, Uriah, forget about what you what your responsibilities are for the war. I want you to to go and relax. And Uriah gives his response, my fellow soldiers are still at war. Why should I enjoy the comfort of my house? Like, why should I be doing that when I've been commanded to go and fight this battle and the battle's still going on? I shouldn't be coming home and and taking a break in the middle of it. I think there's also like a a subtext there as well as like, well, hang on, the Ark of the Covenant is in a a booth. All of the soldiers are in in tents camping out in the battleground. Um, The Joab, the general, is also there kind of the subtext is why aren't you David why are you at home why are you kind of hanging around while the rest of Israel is out fighting um, partly in your name uh, for for victory and you're kind of lounging around at home Um, we also kind of don't know if Uriah has heard about what's going on but um, the way that this is written kind of suggests that it's like an open secret right like what happened with Bathsheba is not um it's not something that only David and Bathsheba knows because David's like sending people, sending soldiers around to like, oh, bring that woman to me. Who's that woman? Like people, people in the palace are going to know, right? Maybe people uh, in, who are faithful to Uriah would have kind of whispered, hey, you know, your wife was over at the palace the other night. Like he, he might know what's happening. He might have an idea of, of what's going on. He doesn't want to be part of, uh, of, of this lie. Um, and then David goes even further, right? Like Uriah is not doing what he wants. So he tries to get him drunk. To try and uh, to try and convince him into going home, sleeping with Bathsheba, so that uh, it looks like he's the father, and then they can just cover everything up. But that doesn't work. So the next thing that David does um, is he decides that he's going to uh, murder. Um, oh, I missed a page. Yeah, there we go. Um, he decides that he's going to murder Uriah. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting. Then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. The men of the city came out and fought with Joab. Some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. He instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting, to the king then if the king's anger rises if he says to you why did you go so near to the city to fight did you not know they would shoot from the wall who killed Abimelech the son of Jerubasheth did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes why did you go so near the wall then you shall say to David 
your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Right, so David, David comes up with this plan. I know, we're going to send the army forward and then I'm going to command everyone except Uriah to fall back. Uriah's going to be out on his own and he's going to get killed. Um, so he decides that his, he's doing this all, by the way, obviously just to cover up the fact that he's committed adultery. Right? He's, just, he's just doing it to, to make himself look good. Um, but it, this is such an evil action, right? Like he gives the letter to Uriah. Uriah is delivering his own death sentence. Um, he's bringing the message that is going to kill him. Um, but there's also this collateral damage. It says that before Uriah dies, it says some of David's men died as well. Um, and part of that might be because, actually, if you read what happened, Joab didn't uh, do exactly what he said. He sent some people forward, um, and there were other people there. They didn't all withdraw. But actually, David was the one that, that's decided to use his, his army as a, um, as a means for, for murder of people in his own troops. So nobody should have been going forward anyway. Um, but So this is what happens. Uh, so the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So imagine if you're the messenger. Maybe you probably don't know about this, this secret plot to, to kill one, one guy. Um, and you're bringing this message to the king, and you have to say, Oh, you know, some of your men are dead. Also, one of your best, one of your mighty men has died. Um, that, you're going to be expecting the response that Joab mentioned uh, in the previous part of the passage. You're going to be expecting David to be like, what? Why did you send people near the wall? We know that people can throw stuff off walls. We know that archers can shoot things down. That's just, that's, that doesn't make any sense. That's a bad military tactic. I don't understand. You expect him to get really angry, but um, he doesn't get angry, right? David says to the messenger, say this to Joab. Don't let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours one and now the other. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him encourage Joab because what he's really saying to Joab is you've done well because you've covered up this murder that we've committed together. Don't worry about the other men. Don't worry about all the innocent people that we've just killed because that's war, right? Like it's, it's more than just this, this one, this murder of one person. It's, it's all of these other um, families that are affected. It's, it's this kind of um, uh, like butterfly effect of like one action causes damage to so many other people. Uh, and he's doing this all to cover it up. So this is what happens at the end of the, the chapter. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah's husband was dead, she lamented over her husband. So, I, you know, like, maybe, maybe they had this cultural thing where they all had to do it, but I think that she's lamenting because she's, she loves her husband, right? She's sad that her husband has been killed. She's not just doing it to, to like, put up uh, a, a front, um, but actually she's sad. She's, she's upset. Um, and when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. Even this, right, even this marriage, this is obviously there just to cover up the pregnancy. Um, even this kind of seems like he's doing it maybe uh, to look good, like, oh, don't worry, Bathsheba, I'll bring you in. You don't have to be a widow. I will, I'll, I'll look after the, the, the wife of my, of my, my colleague, my, my war buddy. Um, I'll take care of you. Like, that's, that's what it's kind of looking like. But actually, that's, that's not what's happening, right? Um, the last sentence of this uh, of this passage, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Up to this point, it kind of looks like he's got away with it. Nobody's asking questions. Maybe no one dares to ask questions because he's the king. Um, but everyone kind of seems like, oh, you know what? Yeah, that happened. Uriah died. Maybe it was a bit fishy, but, um, 
Bathsheba's married to David now. Oh, and she's pregnant and a royal baby. We can, uh, we can have a bank holiday or something. Like that's, that's maybe what the people are like. But actually, the Lord knows that, that David's done some bad stuff. Um, David covered up, like tied up all his loose ends. Um, but actually, God sees through that and he sees the real David. In fact, uh, I, I was just curious about the, uh, the things that David did. So uh, these are the last five commandments um, of the Ten Commandments. Uh, so number six, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, like you don't take your, your, uh, a woman from, from uh, somebody else, um, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, don't lie about it, um, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. So he committed the five out of the ten um, <laughs> sins in the Ten Commandments. Um, it's not really going well for him, right? Uh, I made a list of all the things that he did, actually, but we didn't have time to look at it, but um, all of David's actions here are, um, are selfish actions. They're actions that are not, um, not involving God in any way. He's not thinking about um, what it means to do that. Um, but actually, he's kind of failed. He's failed uh, as a war general because he's decided, I'm not going to go to war. I'm going to let this other guy do it, who potentially could be not very good at it because he's just had a load of people killed by accident. Uh, he's failed as a friend, right? Like he, 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 We're pretty sure he knows Uriah. Um, and he's not, he's not, um, done it, but, but yeah, he's failed, clearly failed because he's killed him. Um, he's failed as a man because he's decided, oh, I'm going to go up to this place where actually men shouldn't really be going on the roof, um, and I'm going to kind of abuse my power. He's failed as a king because he's not leading Israel anywhere. He's failed as a father, as we'll see later, um, and he's failed as a husband, as we'll see, um, well, as, as he committed adultery with, with another woman, but, um, also in another way, um, as we'll see later. So this is kind of the, um, the place that we left, uh, these, these are some of the, the descriptions of David that we've had in the past um, couple of weeks. But, um, but it all changes in this, right? So instead of being all those things, he ends up being selfish and arrogant. He ends up committing adultery. He ends up lying. He ends up murdering. Um, he ends up betraying uh, the trust of, of Uriah. He ends up kind of oppressing uh, Bathsheba by kind of just commanding her to do different stuff. Um, so some of these things are not going to be applicable to your life, but I wonder when you find yourself trapped in, uh, in temptation, when you find yourself kind of on that slippery path, how much of those, how many of those descriptions actually apply um, to your life? How many of those things uh, are true or could be true um, if, you, if you had the means of King David? That's not the end of the, uh, the, the story, right? So we're going to continue and we're going to look at what happens in 2 Samuel 12. So... Um, The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Like David, Nathan's turned up out of the blue. He's like, oh, you've got a new wife, I see. Let me tell you the story. And, um, and David doesn't get it, right? Like he's, he's not going, oh yeah, wait, I'm the rich guy. Uh, I'm, I'm the guy that's, that's done this. Because his sin has like blinded him. He's, he's, he thinks he's got away with it. He's content with the situation that he's in. 
Uh, this is what happens next. Uh, Nathan said to David, you are the man. This says the Lord, the God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this was too little, I would add to, to you much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. You have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. This says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this sin, for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sin. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you, are utterly, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. So David, David's one action or multiple actions linked together but this one um this one moment of temptation has led to um this massive set of consequences right like the direct consequences that he's killed his friend and he's committed adultery but also these indirect consequences that actually we're told that um that david's wives are going to be taken from him that um that that his his child is going to die um this is the the kind of the collateral damage that that is caused by david's kind of wandering around and, and mooching up to the roof. So obviously Bathsheba, um, Uriah, the baby, um, which we, we're not going to read that, that passage, but um, we find out that the baby gets born and dies after um, a week, I think. Um, his soldiers that were doing nothing wrong, that were following orders, they got sent to their deaths. Um, his sons, we find out, um, because the sword won't, it says in the passage, the sword won't be taken from his family. Um, his sons end up um, in war, um, and his wives end up um, getting taken from him. Uh, as well, which um, Bert will talk about uh, next week. I think it's interesting as well in this pas- in that passage that um, that it says that the David's wives are going to be taken from him uh, in public. David's committed all of this sin in private. He's done all of this stuff um, behind closed doors, or at least uh, that's the appearance of things. Like he's he's trying to hide it. He's trying to cover it up. Nancy came up with this great uh, quote last week uh, from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. And that's exactly what's happening, right? That's exactly what David's doing. He's decided that he's not going to go to war. He's decided, he's made that decision that I'm just going to be by myself at home. Um, he's decided that he's going to do all of, make all of these actions um, by himself. I'm sure if he didn't included anybody else, they would have said, wait, what are you doing? Like, at any point in the story, David, you've got an opportunity to turn around. Uh, in fact, uh, there's loads of opportunities, right? Like, so at the start of the passage, David, if you didn't go, if you didn't stay at home, then you're fine. Actually, you know that the roof is not a place that you should be going, so don't go to the roof when you're bored. Actually, if you see somebody up there in the bath, don't have another look. Don't notice that they're beautiful. Uh, even if you did do that, don't then invite that person over when you know that uh, she's married to someone else. Uh, don't, once she's over, don't actually sleep with the uh, the wife of your friend or your employee or um or like your one of your uh, commandos don't lie about it actually if you'd have come clean david it wouldn't be as bad don't kill someone about for it don't excuse um the death of all the soldiers that died uh because of your uh, of your lies and your on your murder and then don't just don't cover it up so he's had all those opportunities but um 
he wasn't thinking down any of those lines, right? When he started, when he got up from his couch at the start of, the, of that day, uh, in the late afternoon, he, he wasn't thinking about all of those consequences. Do you guys think about those consequences when you're tempted? Like, do we just kind of drop whatever responsibilities that we have? Actually, that just reminded me of another McDonald's story. Um, there was uh, a couple of years ago, I was, I was going to a, a wedding of a colleague, and I hadn't eaten lunch beforehand. So I decided that I was going to swing by McDonald's on the way because I drove past and I saw them. Um, that resulted in me walking into the church in a rush right as she was walking down the aisle. Uh, so <laughs> there, were, there are tons of consequences of eating at McDonald's, guys. Um, that's, that's the point of it. Um, actually, but that's the thing, right? Like, do we, do, we, um, do we think about those things when we're tempted? We don't, do we? We don't think about... When we, when, we're, when we find ourselves in that place of temptation, we kind of just forget our responsibilities. We... We'll, we'll go where we're not meant to be going, even though we know that we shouldn't. We, we, we take another look when we shouldn't be. Uh, we, we, we lie just a little bit, you know, like we cover it up just because we don't want the hassle. Uh, right back at the, start of, uh, at the start of this series, all the way in September, we looked at Cain and Abel. Um, um, and God says in, in the story of Cain and Abel, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Uh, instead of... Uh, Oh, in fact, we're here, aren't we? Yeah. Uh, Jesus goes further, right? Jesus says this in the Beatitudes. He says, I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better to you for, for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And I think Jesus is, is making a point, right? Like he's saying, oh, the sin is in your heart. Like, actually, it's not to do with your actions, but it's to do with your, your intentions, actually. But he's also kind of making this point that temptation is hard to resist. Like, it's a slippery slope. If your eye is causing you to sin, uh, then poke it out before, before you even get to that point. If your hand is causing you to sin, chop it off before you even get to that point. And David finds himself in this position because uh, actually he's he's being really like proud. He's saying, "I don't need to go and fight. I've my I've built up uh, the 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 nation of Israel is better now than it was when I took over. Um, I've trained up my generals. They know what they're doing." He's like he's complacent. He thinks that he can he can let down his guard. Um, he's being selfish. He's not thinking for the kingdom of Israel. He's not thinking as a friend. He's not thinking as uh, a man after God's own heart. He's thinking for himself, right? And he's also in denial about. Oh, you know what? It'll be fine if I stay at home by myself. In the story of David and Goliath, actually, David chooses to refuse the armor that Saul offers him. And he does that because he trusts that God is going to protect him, right? Um, and now we've got this story of David and Bathsheba. David's at home and he's taken off his, his literal armor because he's not going to work. But he's also taken off that spiritual armor, um, that spiritual armor that we find in, in Ephesians. Um, Ephesians 6 says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Uh, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. It's this idea that actually it's not just fighting a physical urge. It's not, it's not a fact. It's not me driving past McDonald's and fighting against my own hunger or my own cravings because actually McDonald's is not a sin. Um, and I'm, I'm making that point. It's not, we can eat McDonald's whenever we like. Um, it, but it's not, right? Like, it's not that because actually, even though 
it's hard for me to resist that. I can resist that. But actually, this passage here says that actually our, our battle is not against our flesh. It's against the, the evil. The, it, it says it's against Satan. It's against the schemes of the devil. And so we can't just expect to just, you know, like shrug our shoulders. We don't, can't just expect to be like, oh, I'm going to be good today. I'm going to have a salad instead of McDonald's. Because that's not how it works, right? It's this, it's this spiritual battle. And if we're not prepared for this battle, then, uh, then we're always going to fail. It doesn't matter how good you are, how, how, um, how much you're in tune with God like David is, uh, you're, you're going to fail at some point if you try and fight it in your own flesh. Um, we're told in the passage, fasten the belt of truth. Actually, the belt of truth is the knowledge that um, the truth is we're children of God, right? Like the truth is uh, we are sinners and we need God to help us. Um, we know that actually the truth of giving into temptation is not that we'll be satisfied. We might be momentarily satisfied. We might enjoy ourselves for a bit, but actually we know from experience that we're always going to be left empty. We're always going to be left hollow. There's always going to be those consequences, even if they're not immediate. We're told to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Actually, that righteousness is the fact that we're children of God, like that, that our sin isn't the thing that, that defines us, that the thing that defines us is, um, is our righteousness in God. And, and giving in temptation doesn't change who we are. We don't have to um, be ashamed because we've, we've, we've made a mistake. Actually, we can come back to him and we can, uh, and we can ask for forgiveness. Tie the shoes of readiness of the gospel of peace. Actually, this, uh, this turmoil that we feel when we're tempted, this, this, um, this doubt and, uh, and uncertainty that we feel when we're tempted, actually, we can be calmed with the gospel of peace, with the knowledge that, uh, that Jesus died for us. He died for our sins in the past, and he died for the sins that we will commit even though we don't want to uh, going forward. Ready the shield of faith, which can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. When you feel like you can't do it, when you when you just can't give, can't resist, when you feel like you have to give in, actually have faith that God can sustain you. Have faith that the way past your temptation is not through your own ability, not through um, not through resisting whatever it is that you're tempted to, but through Jesus, through through faith in what He's done. Where the helmet of salvation, actually, our minds shouldn't be filled with uh, with these with these earthly things. If we let our minds be filled with these earthly things, then we're going to get distracted. Actually, have the knowledge of eternity, of of the knowledge of salvation in your head, and that's going to push out those those sinful thoughts, those those things that uh, are actually just momentary. If we dwell on things above, um, we're, we're going to be uh, more protected. Uh, and then draw the sword of the spirit which is the word of God, it says. Pray at all times in the spirit. A sword is an a offensive weapon, not a defensive weapon, right? So actually we should be attacking our sin. We should be um, moving forward, moving towards it with the power of prayer, with, with the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, and then finally, at the end of the passage, it says, keep alert. Don't take your armor off for a second, because that's essentially what David's doing, right? Like he's, he's at this point, he's middle-aged. He's kind of just like, oh, I deserve a break. I'm just going to have a rest. Um, don't go in and wash your feet like uh, like David was telling Uriah to do. Don't have a break while people are out there fighting, because this is an ongoing battle—a battle against not our flesh, remember, but against um, against the spiritual, against Satan. We started this series looking at, at Saul, um, 
And Saul messed up a lot. Um, and here David's messed up a lot as well, right? But actually, there's a difference between their response. Even though David does a lot of bad stuff in this chapter, um, his response is focused on his heart. Saul is focused on his actions. When Saul uh, realizes that he's not done what, what God's told him to do, his response is, okay, well, make it clearer. Give me some more bullet points for how I can be better at it. David knows that it's not about that, but it's about his heart's response. Um, and even though he's committed these horrendous sins, um, he knows what God's heart is. And Saul's just kind of going through the motions. David wrote this psalm, and we're going to kind of finish um, looking at it. Um, psalm 51 is um, about his uh, experience uh, with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. David's not coming and saying, oh, which, which lamb shall I sacrifice? Which, what's the biggest sacrifice that I need to make to atone for my sins? Actually, he's coming and he's saying, God, you're the only person that can make things right. And actually, if we've experienced sin and temptation, uh, we, we, we know that position, right? We know that we can't fight it in our own strength. We can't overcome it. It doesn't work. And we know that we need the power of the Spirit to, to help us fight that off and, and guard against it. And we have that power because of the cross, right? Because of what Jesus did. Um, because actually, when we feel overwhelmed by our sin, we can still come to Jesus. We can still find um, forgiveness in that, even in the midst of our struggling and our turmoils. So we don't need to look. We don't need to look like King Saul um, did for, oh, wait, wait, hang on. How, how do I do the sacrifice properly? Actually, we just come and we just say uh, this prayer, have mercy on me, O God. Uh, we're going to come into communion in a, mem- in a minute. Um, but actually, communion is about remembering that Jesus died for this real sin, this sin that, um, that we know plagues us um, day to day. David had this kind of, well, we recorded anyway, this one kind of big, like, everything went wrong here. Um, and most of what else we hear about him uh, is is good. But actually, we know that we've got this sin that follows us around that, that, that isn't just a, a single moment of weakness, but it's multiple single moments of weakness all the time. Um, actually, communion is about remembering uh, that Jesus' body and blood are the consequences of what we've done, of our selfish, arrogant, deceitful actions. But actually, unlike the consequences to David's actions, which was his son, um, dying, actually there's victory. We have the son dying, but then we have him being brought back to life, and that's um, that's what what gives us the ability to, to come and, and worship him and, and to be made clean. Um, I'm going to read a little bit more of Psalm 51, um, just as a prayer as we as we come into a time of communion. So, um, yeah, oh, it's there. So, uh, so yeah, just just uh, listen and, and maybe pray this. And purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. 
Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Now, oh Lord Jesus, God, we're completely at your mercy. We, we are just like David. We are blood guilty. We've committed these countless sins in private. We've given in to our temptation. We've even sought out sin. We've happily climbed up those stairs to the roof when we know we shouldn't be putting ourselves there. Lord, forgive us. Let us not just bring empty sacrifices and burnt offerings, but actually let us just fall before you with a broken heart, with a contrite heart, and show us like Nathan did that actually sometimes we're just blind to our own sin. We can't see it. Um, And let us see it just as, as severely as David did when he asked for the rich man to be put to death. God, keep us alert um, to the enemy and give us the faith to trust that your armor is, is strong enough to protect us and convict us to, to just remove an eye, remove a hand if it causes us to walk into sin. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did on the cross to, to take away the punishment for the, that we 100% deserved. Thank you. We can come and freely receive your sacrifice now. And Lord, we ask for breakthrough in our lives. If there's a sin that has a hold, Lord, would you just break those chains and deliver us, O God? Amen.